This might be a uh, difficult message for some of you to hear. I'm just going to prepare you right up front. I, I get a fairly intuitive sense of that stuff when I'm preparing for Sunday morning, just in culture, what people can hear and what they can't. And usually, it all comes down to the fact of just, you know, what our, our, our culture that you and I live in and we breathe in and act in uh, sets us up or doesn't set us up to hear. And what I'm going to share today goes against the grain of what a lot of people think about God and, and what, even maybe what you have thought about God. But I, I want to encourage you and challenge you to do this, and that is bear with me to the end of today. Bear with me because we're going to deal with some difficult things about God and his posture toward human beings, what the Bible says about him and us. But we're going to wrap this up in a way today that I think will make sense and that you're going to like. I need you to dig with me today. I, I, I got a great compliment at the end of the last service. Somebody came up to me and said, I, I came to church prepared for a snack and I got a meal. And, and so I think you're going to find that today. If you're willing to dig a little bit in the truth of who God is, you're going to find some, some difficult but some wonderful things to latch on to in your understanding of him and your own life and this world around us. So with that said, I know I've wet your whistle with that. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're gracious, that you're merciful, that you're kind, and that you're truthful, and that you're a God of, uh, of justice and righteousness. And Lord, we're going to wrestle with those things here this morning and, and what justice and righteousness say about how you feel about humanity and how you felt about us over the years and that, Lord, even why that has led us to your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he is and provides for us today. So God, with that said, bless our time in your word. May we dig deep. May we understand rightly who you are and certainly, Lord, then apply it diligently to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So if you're just joining us in this series, we're, we're basically taking a look at the first few chapters of the book of Romans and trying to understand our identity as those made in the image of God, those who are fallen for humanity in general. What does the Bible say about who we are and what our identity is? And so for the first couple of weeks in this series, we took a look at these topics. We first took a look at the fact that we are image bearers, image bearers made in the image of God, wonderfully created, unique, creative, and massively blessed by the Creator. It's good news <coughs> that God made us in His image and made us very good, as Genesis 1 says. But then in the second week, a couple weeks ago, we saw that we are also fallen, that sin has entered into this world, and by extension, us, each of us, and now we can't help but sin, and as a result, we are separated from Almighty God. So we are image bearers, the Bible says, who are fallen. And folks, I wish, oh do I wish, that the downward slope stopped there, that that's all God says about us, but it doesn't. In wrestling with the pathway, the journey that Romans sets out for us, this wonderful New Testament book, it goes on to affirm a third thing about us that we need to wrestle with today, and that is that we are in trouble. We are image bearers who are, in fall, who are fallen, and now we're in trouble. And the simple reason that we're in trouble is that in response to our fallenness and corresponding sin, God's anger or what the Bible calls his wrath, is now in part directed toward us. It's true. 
And this is going to form a key part of who we are as human beings, our identity before Almighty God, and what you and I need to wrestle with as we wrestle with our understanding of God. That we are image bearers who are fallen and now are in trouble because God is angry, generally speaking, at humanity. Now, before we go any further with this idea of the wrath of God, I need us to wrestle with something. And that is that as soon as I mention that phrase, wrath of God, I know what many of you are thinking. You're conjuring up images maybe from your childhood or from watching Hollywood movies or just from understanding the whole church thing. You're conjuring up images of what the wrath of God connotes for you. A thunderous pulpit, hellfire and brimstone, lightning being thrown from heaven. These are all things that we tend to think of when we think of the wrath of God. And one of the first things you and I need to do is own that and then try to deal with that because I'm going to suggest to you that it's kind of a pedantic and storybook way of understanding the wrath of God that at the end of the day doesn't help us very much. As many of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't go to church much when I was a kid. And so when I became a Christian in my early adult years, I started to understand that many Christians were raised with this idea of the wrath of God being a thundering voice from heaven. And I remember watching a movie when my kids were young. It was a G-rated fun movie called Pollyanna with Haley Mills. It's an old-time classic. And about early on in this movie, Pollyanna is in church with her aunt, and they're experiencing one of these wrath of God sermons. And I think it's an amazing depiction of what some of us might have grown up with and what we tend to think of when we think of the wrath of God. So let's review it up here on the screen, and then let's try to get this out of the way. So look up here on the screen. Death comes unexpectedly. And the God Jehovah will execute his vengeance on ye who despise his dying love and trample his benefits underfoot. The unconverted soul, the foolish children of man do miserably delude themselves in the false confidence of their own strength and wisdom. They trust to nothing but a shadow. But bear testament. Death comes unexpectedly. Now you say, ah, no, I, I had not intended it to come now. I had laid out matters otherwise. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but death came unexpectedly like a thief, outwitting me, too quick for me. Oh, cursed foolishness, that I had flattered and pleased myself with vain dreams of repentance, but sudden destruction caught me up. And now he will deal with you. Now the great king of heaven and earth will abolish and annihilate this pride, will crush the hardened wretch of the polluted infinite abomination and rain on him a deluge of fire and brimstone. And where is their strength then? Where are the great leviathans who defied God then? Where is their courage, these, 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 these proud spirits? Yes. Death comes unexpectedly. And the dread judge has the key of hell. He shuts and no man opens. In hell, 
You will be reserved in chains of darkness forever and ever. This place of atonement, of damned souls and misery, with nothing to relieve you, no comfort, no water for your parched tongues, no place to rest or take a breath, but the everlasting, infinite convulsions of misery forever and ever and ever. All right, that's enough. What do you say? <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I mean, there's a few of you who are saying, man, those are good old days. So there's a few of you who are saying that. And there's others of you who are saying, I'm very thankful for Daryl for 25 years. And, and thank you, Jamie, for bringing that back to us. And I think that's how a lot of people tend to think of God when they think of his wrath. I remember the first time I saw that clip, I thought, I get it now. I get it when some people have said to me, you know, I was raised in a church that whenever they would talk about the wrath of God or the anger of God, this is what comes to mind for me. And as a result, our view of God then is that God is angry, that he's just waiting to spit fire on us and consign us to hell, that, that he's a vengeful old man in a white robe with white hair and all the power of the universe out to get us. That's what people tend to think of when they think of the wrath of God. And those we're going to see this morning, the wrath of God is very real. And it is something we need to wrestle with. It's not quite how the Hollywood depiction or storybook things that we've heard of the past make it out to be. And so in our time remaining, I want to explore what the wrath of God is, grow up a little bit in our understanding of it, and start to really understand what the Bible's saying about God and his anger and what this means for you and I. So three things, if you want to pull out your outline, three things I want to share with you today that Romans clearly guides us in in understanding God and any anger he would have towards humanity. And here's the first thing that it does affirm. Let's just start very simple but honest, and that is that God is angry with humanity, and rightly so. It's true. Let's just get it on the table. God is mad at his wonderful creation in part, and yet it's for good reason, but it's not in the way that most of us tend to think. In other words, it's not like God is some vengeful, jealous God that has just not been appeased by humanity and in his arrogance and pride now wants to get back at them. That's the Greek conception of God, by the way, in Jesus' day. When you had Zeus and Apollos and all the Greek gods who were very human-like and their pride was wounded so they would send lightning bolts down on people, that's a Greek conception of God. That's not a biblical conception of God. And it's also not like God is, is a human being that gets angry and fumes and vents like your father might have or a friend that you might have in your life. No, that's not it at all. Uh, listen, what the Bible says is that indeed God is angry with creation, but it's a righteous anger in the sense of being legitimate, and it's a healthy anger in the sense of being expressed appropriately. You'll see what we mean as we go along today. So first, just think about the fact that if God is at all angry with this creation he has made, and the Bible says he is, then by nature it must be a legitimate or a righteous anger. 
If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to the book of Romans chapter 1. Uh, when I left a couple of weeks ago, I told you that we were going to get back to chapter 1 and take a deep dive into chapter 1, and we're going to here today. Look at chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to uh, understand up through verse 23 here in the first part of our message here. And I want you to take a look at what Romans 1, 18 through 23 says about God and his anger with humanity. And I want you to notice with me that there are four good reasons listed here that when you and I are thinking right about this idea of God's anger, we go, well, yeah, I guess that would make sense that he's angry with humanity in general based on these four reasons. And here's the first reason, and that is that it tells us that we, meaning humanity in general, have fallen into ungodliness and unrighteousness. So look at how it clearly says this in verse 18 as it starts this whole discussion. It says, for the wrath of God, his anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know, it's interesting. That word unright or ungodliness here it literally means that which goes against God and the spiritual realm. Interesting definition. Uh, ungodliness means that which goes against God and the spiritual realm. And so these are sins of spirituality that's being talked about here, that you and I all have a spiritual nature, and there are times that we just go against that spiritual nature. And then hanging out of that, that word unrighteousness there literally means that which goes against the moral nature of humankind. So we have a spiritual part of us, but then we also have a moral part of us that tells us right or wrong, and it's saying that we've gone against that, generally speaking, as a humanity. And I like how one uh, commentator, Bible expert, points out that this kind of neatly lines up with the Ten Commandments when you see it this way. So give me another click here on the screen. That when you look closely at this, the first idea there, that of ungodliness, sins against our spiritual nature, line up with the first four of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, do not take the Lord's name in vain, make sure you keep the Sabbath day holy. And then the other six Ten Commandments neatly line up with this idea of unrighteousness going against our moral nature. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbors anything. And when you see it this way, ungodliness and unrighteousness, neatly lining up with the Ten Commandments, I just simply ask you, who here today has kept all of the Ten Commandments, say, in the last year without slipping in one of them. I just don't think many of us would claim that we have done that, if any of us. I mean, of course we have fallen in these areas, as we saw a couple of years ago, and what you simply need to see is that God's disappointed with that. And in his disappointment, he's even angry at that. He's angry at the fact that we have fallen into sin just like you are with your own kids when they do this. And those with me a second reason then, building on this that Romans 1 tells us that God is mad at the creation that he loves. And that is that we, as generally speaking as humanity, have shirked off truth about God and this world. Now get this, that we know intuitively. This is going to be important for you. That God says that every one of us Everybody, I mean from your neighbor to your co-worker to your friends to your family members to you, are born with an intuitive nature of who God is, and yet we've not followed up on that. Look at how it says this in verses 18b through 20. 
It says after it says that, that God's anger is kindled against us, it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what would be known by, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made so that they, meaning humanity, are without excuse. I think this makes sense. He's simply saying that all of us are born with an innate understanding of God. We, at some point in our lives, have looked around at this world. We've looked at nature, say the Grand Tetons or the McDowell Mountains or the beauty of the desert. We have understood that there's a moral code written into our hearts and in our minds. And we ask the question, could this have happened by chance or could there be a grand designer behind all of this? And we say, well, duh, it seems that there might be a grand designer behind all of this. Every human being has those thoughts and has that understanding of God, even before you read anything in the Bible. And what the Bible is saying here is that then we have not followed up on that and we've decided to go our own way instead. And again, I think that's evident in humanity today. That's why we have false religions. That's why we have atheism, people who deny God's existence outright. That's why we have all kinds of worldviews and philosophies that go against God and his moral character. It's because humanity in general understands intuitively some things about God and then doesn't follow up on them. And simply see, God says, that ticks me off. That's not something that I'm happy with, with this creation that I have made and loved. And then notice a third reason, right on the coattails of this, that Romans tells us that God might be angry with humanity. And that is that we have refused to worship then and follow, worship then and follow God with any modicum of faithfulness. I like that word modicum here. It simply means a small portion, a minimum requirement. And what I'm simply suggesting to you here is that Romans tells us in this context here that humanity in general has decided to go its own way and hasn't even followed up on this knowledge that they have of God in, in a minimum sort of way when it comes to worship and following God. Look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we didn't just stop at suppressing truth. Humanity didn't. But we acted on it, and generation after generation, God says, we have failed to follow him and worship him as he wants to be worshipped. And all I know is that when you and I think reasonably about this, we go, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we live in a culture today, in a world today, that doesn't momentarily, every moment, fall on its knees and worship God. We live in a culture today in which there's stuff on the radio, the internet, TV, that are certainly anti-God, and they're all about self and sin and the things that we know God is not about. Look around you. And then we get honest with our own lives. And we say, well, yeah, and there's times, if not often, that I'm that way. And then I'm living a self-satisfied, self-centered life. And I, I guess that would be, make God angry at me. I'm starting to see a pattern here, folks, how this builds one upon the other. Ungodly and unrighteous behavior, suppressing the truth, failing to follow. And then in a crowning blow to all of this, but in a way that I think makes sense, the fourth reason that the book of Romans gives us here 
is that we, again, generally as humanity, have chosen to fill our lives with other things to replace God. So we didn't just stop at failing to follow, but then we replaced God with other things in our lives, what the Bible calls idols. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Now, that word exchange there is a fascinating word. It literally means to trade. So bartering, you trade something for something. And though in the context of, of the first century, it's saying that they had people around then that would take a piece of wood and would make an idol out of it, put it on their mantle, and worship that idol in that kind of animistic culture. Today, though we don't make idols out of pieces of wood, I would suggest to you that we've also done the same thing, however, when it comes to money, fame, prestige, power, even benign things like our hobbies and our interests. Anytime that we put something above God, and we all do it, we've become idol worshipers. And even though the things that we put above God are relatively innocent and benign things, like money or our hobbies, just as a piece of wood in the first century was innocent, as soon as we carve it and make it into an idol, put it on the mantle place of our lives and put that above God, God says, I'm not happy with that. I, I intended for me to have first place status in your life and you've relegated me to second or third place status. And please see, God says, that makes me angry at my humanity that I love. And, and, you know, I've heard all the arguments against this over the years when people understand this. They say, well, well, you know, I know these are serious things, Jamie, but why can't God just forgive us? Why can't he just say, water off a duck's back? It's not really a big deal. Why can't he just let it go? And whenever I hear people say that, I think to myself, I got you. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because you would cry foul if you ever did that in your daily life, if there was some gross injustice in front of you and you were to say to the person around you, eh, I'm just going to let it go and forgive that. Somebody molested a child, I'm just going to let that go and forgive that. Somebody raped somebody brutally, I'm just going to let that go and forgive that. Somebody murdered somebody, or somebody set up a Ponzi scheme that ruined the retirement of millions of people? I'm just going to let that go and forgive that. See, we don't function like that in our lives. All of us, when we see gross injustice in our lives, and by the way, we should do this, say there needs to be a penalty paid for that. That's wrong. That harms others. That hurts society. And there's something in us that cries justice. And I would argue that's a good thing. It's just that why would we think that that's no different with God? Why would we ask God to function differently than us when it comes to injustice within his economy? Maybe look at it this way, folks. God is a relational being. He made us to have relationship with himself. He longs for this. And we've not followed up on our end of the bargain. We've ignored his truth, shunned his values. We've gone our own way, again, humanity in general. And God says that he's mad about that. And he's angry with humanity as a result. And though it's not a popular notion today to think that God might be mad at us, it's true. He loves humanity, but he's mad at us at the same time. And we have to wrestle with that and understand 
how God is posturing himself toward us, and then what he wants us to do about it, or better yet, what he has done about it. Now, once we get this, I think the real question becomes, for those of us today who wrestle with this, is how has God then chosen to deal with his anger? In other words, what does he do with it, and how does this affect us? Or to put it in more theological terms, how is the wrath of God revealed today? And this is a great question. And this is where I believe we need to veer greatly from the Hollywood depictions of God's wrath. Because, you see, Romans tells us this about God's anger. And this is number two on your outline. And this is what you need to wrestle with. And that is that at this time, God's wrath is primarily revealed in allowing sin to have its own consequences in our lives. I know that's a mouthful, but try to get your head and heart around this because it will help you tremendously in understanding God. The Bible says that at this time, God's anger is primarily demonstrated in allowing our own sin to develop its natural consequences in our lives. And you're you're saying, does the Bible really say this? In black and white, it says this. I want you to go back to verse 18 there where it said very clearly in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's how this whole passage starts here. It's a new paragraph, a new thought. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And then as we saw in verses 18 through 23, it tells us why God is so mad. We looked at the four reasons as to why God would be mad at his creation that he loves. But then in verse 24, it begins by answering the how of God's wrath. In other words, how is his wrath then revealed from heaven? In what form? And by the way, that's a really important question to ask. I mean, is God so furious that he throws literal lightning bolts at humanity? When there's a tornado in Kansas, is it because somebody has sinned? Is AIDS God's plague on homosexuals? Is venereal disease God's plague on adulterers? When Washington messes up in politics, does a hurricane come their way? I mean, people ask these questions, and you and I all know Christians who seem to insinuate these things. And so dial into this. This is very, very important. In the next three paragraphs, beginning in verse 24, as it answers how God's wrath is revealed, each paragraph begins with this precise phrase. Look up here on the screen. It begins with God gave them up to. And then it lists a form of sin and its natural consequences. This is important for you to understand God's anger. The wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, and then beginning in verse 24, so God gave them up to, three times repeated in the next beginning of the next three paragraphs, some form of sin. Do you see? There's no causal action here. There's no action on God's part in his anger to punish sin at this time. It's simply telling us that he allows the natural course of sin, the sin we have chosen, to run its own route. you got to see this. And so listen to how Doug Moo, easily one of the foremost scholars on the book of Romans alive today, says it in his very voluminous commentary on Romans. Listen to what he says about this exact idea in these verses. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, This is God handing over in a passive sense. By withdrawing his influence, God permits them to continue in and indeed plunge more deeply into the sin they had already chosen. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of his crime that he has earned, God hands over the sinner 
to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. So you have all heard that old phrase, you made your bed, now sleep in it, right? That's exactly what Mu is suggesting, that Romans is telling us here that God's anger is expressed, it's postured toward us in such a way that it's tough love. He's saying, you chose sin, now I'm going to let it run its course. I I like how Frederick Godet, a great 19th century scholar, said it. This is poetic but very profound. He said, God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. That's what's going on here, folks. God could have held the boat. He he could have said, you know, water off a duck's back. I know there's gross injustice in this humanity that I have made, and I'm just going to hold the boat for right now and keep everything still. But it's saying, God, let the boat go. And he allowed sin to run its course in society, in our personal lives. And that's an expression of his anger at this time, as we're going to see in a second here, only toward the goal to wake us up of our need for him. And though we don't have time to go into the details this morning, what I simply need to notice here is that the rest of Romans 1 then, the whole rest of the chapter, is committed to telling us, spelling out how God has given us up to our own sin, how this works out in our lives. So, for instance, in verses 24 to 27, it tells us that fallen feelings are going to lead to immoral actions. And you and I all know this is true. If you have a feeling of hatred or jealousy or envy or any any of the other ugly emotions, and that goes unchecked in your life, it just runs rampant, it's going to lead to some actions that you're not proud of. So verses 24 through 27 say it this way. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Interesting. Think of the wording there. Receiving in themselves the consequence of the due penalty for their error. I mean, folks, we have known for years that if you have multiple sex partners, it will significantly heighten the risk of a sexually transmitted disease. Just naturally so. Sin has biological consequences for our lives. And I would say it's the same with homosexuality. Please see this. Let's grow up in this area. God loves us, each and every one of us. He made us and he knows us and he longs to be in relationship with us. But he also knows that we have gone our own way as a human race. And so in love, tough love, he allows our sin to run its course in our lives, as we're going to see in a second here, simply to wake us up, to get us to the point where we just might say, enough is enough. I don't want to live like this. I don't want this to be the sum total of my life. Help me, God. That's why God allows these things to happen in our lives. 
And then notice that Romans 1 finishes by telling us that fallen thinking leads naturally to wrong behaviors. So fallen feelings lead to more actions. Fallen thinking leads to wrong behaviors in verses 28 through 32 there. It says just in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here it is the third time, God gave them up to a debased mind that does the things they ought not to do. And then I counted, it goes on to list 21 different vices or consequences that wrong thinking creates in our lives. Again, very naturally so. God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. At best, it's God withholding his protection, his interference, if you will. This is primarily how his anger is revealed at this time. No different than a parent who finally says to his son or daughter, I got to let the consequences of your actions play out. Otherwise, you'll never learn. You'll never grow up. God has the same posture toward us. Now, before we apply this and wrap up, because we need to and will in just a few minutes here, I want to give you two very important caveats uh, at this point that that you need to understand about this second point here, because I don't want to be misunderstood. First caveat is that notice that I am saying at this time, this is how God's wrath is revealed. In other words, this is how I believe God is dealing with us at this time, but as we're going to see next week, I'm going to suggest that we're in deep trouble because of the next thing Romans goes on to talk about in chapter 2, and that's God's coming judgment. The fact that someday God is going to say, enough is enough, let's bring this whole thing to a head, and there's going to be a judgment time, and for those of us found in Christ, it's going to be a glorious time, and for those that aren't, it's going to make this current expression of God's wrath look like a sunny day in Arizona. And so at this time, right now, this is how God postures himself toward us in his anger. And then secondly, notice that I'm saying that this is primarily at this time how God functions. And I, and I say that because some of you that are really biblically sharp are saying, but Jamie, I know of instances where God's wrath is kindled and he immediately does something in that moment toward humanity. So you guys remember that famous story of the Exodus event when the, when the uh, Egyptians are chasing the Israelites and they go across the Red Sea and when the Egyptians get to the Red Sea, what happens? Drowning time for all the Egyptians, for Pharaoh's army. That, that's God's anger right there breaking into this world. Or how about in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the apostles about their gifts and their, their offerings? And God took them right at that moment and ended their life. I mean, God entered in at that time. There are instances where we see God's anger break in and he does something to stop a current circumstance. But here's what you need to see, folks. And that is that these are not the norm. These are far and far between acts. They are outliers. God's primary way now, if we're reading Romans right, and we are is to simply let sin have its own consequences. You made your bed, now sleep in it. And the reason that this is important is because I think there's some practical applications here that you and I need to grab onto today that I hope our church never falls into. And here's a couple of practical applications. This is not in your notes, not even on the PowerPoint. Just listen up. First is that I don't think God is in the habit of punishing sin right on the spot at this time. And I get weary when Christians seem to suggest this to those around them. 
In other words, I'm saying that AIDS is not God's personal and punitive judgment on homosexuality. I don't think it is. I think that AIDS is a natural consequence of sexually transmitted diseases, but I do not think that it's God intervening and punishing homosexuals. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says that God is patiently waiting with all love for all people to turn back to him. And when we suggest that God is actively punishing a certain element of his creation today, I think we need to be very careful with that because if it's true for them, now get humble here, church, then it's got to be true for us. So to the degree that you apply this to other parts of our country or to other people, whether it's in the deep south in a, in a city that's known for sin and then gets hit with a hurricane, and we say, well, that's God's punishment, what about all the sin in Arizona? What about all the sin in Scottsdale? What about all the sin even in our church right now that I know is going on? Aren't we glad that God is patient and kind and merciful and that his wrath at this stage is in allowing sin to run its course but patiently waiting for us to wake up and come back to him? See, I think this has absolute practical application today for you and me. I remember wrestling with this when I was a young Christian way back in the early 80s, this whole idea of God's anger and that does he cause immediate punishment on us when we sin. And I remember asking a friend of mine, you know, I, I said to him, he was a wiser, older friend, I said, you know, when I'm walking down the road sometimes and I trip, you know, and, and you know what made me trip, is that God's way of saying, oh, you just thought something that was wrong and, you know, and, and is kind of bringing that to my attention. And I'll never forget my friend's response. This was great. He said, well, if that was true, then you would probably be falling and tripping all over the place. <laughs> and that made sense. I thought, well, duh, that's, that's true. And, and so I don't think we can live our lives that way. I don't think that's how God functions and postures himself in our lives. No, here's the second implication of this. Sin has enough of its own consequences, and when gone unprotected, isn't that enough to wake most of us up? Haven't you experienced that in your life up to this point? I have. As I said to you guys all last year, last year was the 30th anniversary of me becoming a Christian. I was 47. I accepted Christ at the age of 17. And even by the age of 17, I was so sick of my sin and my life and the mess I had made. I was just going no place fast. I was just a punk kid who was going down a road that I knew was not right for me. And when God revealed his grace and his mercy, as well as the fact that I had made a mess of my life up to that point, that made total sense to me. I couldn't argue with that one. And just the consequences of my own behavior were enough to say to me, I need Jesus Christ. You see, that's how God wants us to work. He allows these things to go on in our lives so that we might wake up to our fallenness and come back to him in trust and faith. And that brings us to the third and final thing that we need to wrestle with here today. And this brings it all together. This is why I asked you to hang with me till the end. Because this one brings it all to a head. And that is that in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is no more. I, I, I'm telling you, you're going to love this. We, we spent almost all of our time today here trying to understand why and how God might be angry with creation. And the whole reason the Bible lays any of this out is that by the time we get to chapter 5 of the book of Romans, it delivers the most glorious news ever to hit humankind. And that is that for those who embrace Jesus Christ, 
everything it had said about the wrath of God up to this point is now null and void. <laughs> Look at how it says this in verses 8 and 9 of Romans 5. This, this is a game changer. It says, but God shows his love for us. Again, I've been telling you all the morning, God loves you. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Isn't that incredible? The, the, the fact that in Jesus Christ, for those of you who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, for any of us who are following him here today, the Bible says God's no longer ticked at you. Not at all. I mean, everything you just read in the first four chapters about his general posture towards humanity doesn't count for you. Doesn't count for anybody that has humbled themselves and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, why is that so? Dial into this. And that is because it tells us here that when Christ was dying on that cross, the wrath of God was being poured on Jesus instead of us. Jesus was atoning, dying for our sins, the death that we should have died. And so that justice issue of why can't God just let it go has now been dealt with. Because God does let it go, but he lets it go in the right way through Jesus paying the penalty we should have paid, Jesus incurring the wrath and anger of God. That's why Jesus said from the cross, and maybe this will finally make sense to some of you, that's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what most Bible experts point out is that in that moment, God did turn his face away from Jesus as Jesus bore the sin and wrath of God on that cross, the sin and wrath that you and I should have faced. We don't have to face it because of what Christ has done for us. Again, guys, I don't know about you, but when I got this 30 years ago, it changed everything about my life because I still sin and I still struggle with sin. But now I wake up every morning and as Jeremiah says in the book of Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. Why? Because of what I did? No, as we already established, I messed up. It's because of what Jesus did. And so as I've told you guys a thousand times before, I do not wake up every day and say, gee, I'm a pastor of a big wig church. I don't think like that. I wake up every morning and I confess my sin before God. And before my feet even hit the ground, I thank him for his provision of Jesus Christ. Every moment of every day, I'm reminded of that. And that's God's spirit revealing to me and hopefully to you why Jesus is so important to your life. One last story, and we'll, we'll go to our, our, our time. We'll end this thing. Uh, before I left for Scottsdale, I was living in Cleveland, as you guys know. There was a, a pastor that had moved into my little hometown there of Chagrin Falls. And this pastor had been trained at a seminary that wasn't known for teaching the most conservative, orthodox things about Christianity, even though he's a Christian pastor. And he was serving a church that I was familiar with that was kind of wishy-washy when it came to certain orthodox truths of Christianity, what we might call more liberal-minded church. And I wanted to get with him and just hear his heart, so we had lunch together. And at one point I asked him, I said, I don't want this to be like a doctrinal witch hunt, but do you mind if I asked you a few key theological questions? And he said, shoot. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus rose literally on the third day that on Easter Sunday he rose from the dead? And, and he said, well, I think something special happened on Easter Sunday. And I was like, wow, this isn't starting out very good. <laughs> and I said, so let's just get down to the, the heart of it. I said, do you think that Jesus Christ died on a wooden cross 
for the sins of humankind. That's like Christianity 101. And as long as I live, I'll never forget his answer. He was very clear. He looked at me and he said, this is a Christian pastor, he said, if you mean, did he die to appease the wrath of an angry God? Of course not. He said, I don't think that that's what Jesus was at all doing on the cross. And I said, well, then what was he doing on the cross? He said he was basically just showing us that we need to die to self, and Jesus died to himself, and now we need to model our lives after him. And though I think he's correct that there's a good modeling of Jesus in that, if that's the sum total of why Jesus needed to die, then guys, i got to tell you, I wouldn't be a Christian, and I wouldn't be up here today. And here's why I'm not being sacrilegious. There's lots of that kind of modeling in our world today. Gandhi modeled that really well. Nelson Mandela modeled that really well. Martin Luther King modeled that really well. There have been lots of models over the years on what selfishness and even a good death should show us about loving humanity. Jesus did that, but really his death was much more than that. It was so that you and I might have life, and life directly and personally with Almighty God. Let's pray. Father God, I got to believe that there might be some here today or over in our venue room that are finally getting it when it comes to dealing with this difficult issue of your anger. And Lord, in a mature way, they get that, of course, you would be angry with humanity based on what we've done. Anybody would. But that, Lord, in Jesus Christ, your provision, your anger is no more. And we now have a chance, a new chance at life and at knowing you intimately and eternally. And so, Father, I pray that if the light has gone on for any of us here today for the first time, that we might embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and mark today as our spiritual birthday, the day that we accepted Christ. And Lord, may we celebrate it as such. Lord, for the rest of us that have known these things for years, I pray, God, that today might be a day of more clarity for us, that we might be able to understand and communicate rightly the why and how of your anger. And that, Lord, as that is part now of our identity, may we embrace and walk as free people who are no longer under your anger, but under your grace and your love. Thank you for Jesus and all he provides. We pray this in his name. Amen.